Welcome to The Culture Bunker, our brand new weekend pop culture edition. It's the glossy supplement to The Bunker's daily papers. I'm Sean Pattenden. I'm still new round here. With me is Bunker stalwart Alex Andreu, whom regulars know well. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> How are you finding it, being in the same studio, doing the same podcast, but under a different name? Sure, it's a different name. I don't know where the kettle is. I don't know where the stationery cupboard is. <laughs> well, baby steps, Sean. Okay. We don't have box files. And I cannot uh, show you the stationery cupboard, as that is where I have locked Andrew Harrison. <laughs> it puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. <laughs> In this week's show, more than a feeling. Our special guest today is the marvellous Dan Gillespie Sells of The Feeling, who is also the man behind the songs in mega-hit West End musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which has been turned into a film and which is out today, streaming on Amazon Prime. We ask him what makes a modern musical. Plus, whale meet again. <laughs> we'll be looking at BBC drama The North Water, starring Colin Farrell, Stephen Graham and Jack O'Connell. And also on today's show, after 18 months of sheltering, I step back into the darkness of the cinema for a veritable horror feast with a very special guest. And we check out season three of Sex Education on Netflix. Oh, to be young again. Not forgetting, for Patreon subscribers, Dan Gillespie sells favourite track of all time and more, goddammit, on today's Culture Bunker. So, Alex, you're already down with the puns, I would hope. I'm terribly sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it's round here. Big mouth, spirit of, still lives with us. Just be gentle with me today. (laughs) I am still in recovery. Nadine and Doris are not two words that should be allowed near culture and secretary. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking this must be some sort of anxiety dream, you know, that that any moment now we'll experience that relief that I wake up in the darkness of my bedroom and I think, thank fuck, none of this (laughs) happened. Or that someone in Whitehall somewhere is picking up a phone and shouting at some aide, I said we needed more lorries. <laughs> Not dories. <laughs> Sorry. I know. It and is a fever breathe. dream. Yes. <laughs> Just the idea of her being in charge of our sector is... Now, as mentioned up top, shall we meet the first of our special guests? We certainly must. I could not be more delighted to work on my first guest today. He's the front pointy sexy bit of the brilliant band The Feeling. <laughs> and he's here today primarily in his capacity as a composer. Because what you may not know is that as well as a string of hits, he wrote the score to the smash West End hit, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, the glorious movie of which is released today on Amazon. Welcome, Dan Gillespie Sells. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm overwhelmed by your introduction. And that, that, that was just very entertaining for oh, me. Oh, there's I'm, more to come. You guys are pure theatre already. <laughs> Dan, I am reliably informed that before you hit the big time, you and the gang did a stint of several seasons playing alpine ski resorts as a cover band. And I understand your rendition of Walk Like an Egyptian was quite a thing. Well, all the kids in the marketplace say. Um, what was your, <laughs> your favourite song to cover? I don't know how you got any of that information, <laughs> by the way. That is, that is all deep. You went deep Google. You went somewhere. I don't know where you got that information from, but, but it, was, uh, it, it was like another world. It was like in the life away. We were like 19 years old. It was the 90s, you know. We were, we were playing in the Alps. We, we left college. We had a record deal when we were at college. Um, really briefly and then it just kind of fell through disappeared and we were like oh right okay so that's not happened 
because um, we were too young and mm. we weren't ready for it. So it was the right thing to have happened. But then we went off to the Alps because uh, our drummer saw an advert and, you know, you can go and do gigs and you can get paid and they, they sort your accommodation and feed you. It was just something to do. It's basically it's, like a cruise ship <laughs> gig in the snow. <laughs> in the snow. But it was, it was, it was started off at eight shows a week and went up to 10 shows a week. And it mm. was, it was the most exhausting thing, but only something you can do when you're like 19, 20, 21 yeah. years old. You just, you just can't physically do it any other age of your life because I think it would have killed us. So, you know, we did two hour shows and we went skiing and we drank too much. And <laughs> it was my first time being a lead singer. I wasn't a lead singer before that. I was just writing the songs and standing at the back doing. Oh, you weren't the front guitar. pointy sexy bit. I wasn't the front pointy sexy bit. I, I, pointy, I like, by the way. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the bit I agree with. I don't know about sexy, but pointy, definitely. Um, it was a training ground. It was amazing because you, you, you suddenly, we didn't play covers before that. And we mm. suddenly had to learn how to play a load of covers. Mm. And, and, I suppose you learn the anatomy of a pop song quite quickly when you've got to do them in front of a crowd mm. that, that are there to drink and ski and not really that interested in what you're doing. You kind of have to turn them on and you have to get them excited and you have to give them the the, the onus to get even more drunk because that's your <laughs> job is to is to sell drinks essentially, you yeah. know, and to be the place to, you know, all the bars are in endless competition in those places. So you're, you want to be the band that people want to go to um, for, for the most amount of fun and the most amount of uplift. So I think that led to the feeling because I think that the, the we learned about the power of pop. Mm. We learned about the power of a big chorus and a melody mm. and all that kind of stuff. You know, there was no kind of shoegazing allowed. It was just like you, you either get the punters in and you get them dancing and, and singing along or you failed. And so I think it was like baptism of fire for a bunch of musicians who previously were probably a bit shoegazy and a bit noodly and up our own asses. I think we, we learned that there was no way of doing that to, to earn the rent. You know, How is there not a series about this on some streaming service somewhere there should be about the bands that go out there. Yes. Um, Dan, you won a Stonewall Award as Entertainer of the Year in 2007 and Entertainer of the Decade in 2015, which was created for you and nobody else has won before or since. Are you lobbying them for Entertainer of the Century or are you done now? Uh, millennium? <laughs> I, don't know what, what, how, I don't know how that happened. I have no idea how that happened. That was one of the bizarrest things ever. And and I I suppose I don't know. There must have it does feel really weird actually, because I don't feel like as spearheady um uh, when it comes to LGBT stuff as I mean I'm completely I was always out, I was always openly gay. I come from a LGBT family, I was raised by two women, I've I've grew up in the community and very much part of the community, but I'm not a bang a drum banger really. I, I just do my work mm. and I'm just kind of true to myself and and i think there are pioneers who were there way before i was you know look at holly johnson or look you know there's there's you know people that were were there doing much more uh, uh, forward thinking stuff 20 years before i did so it, it feels strange to me that that, <laughs> that i got those awards we, we all stand on the shoulders of giants but yeah. um maybe being able to be in that space without being a drum banger Right. And being gay, maybe that was progress. I think, yeah, maybe um, you're right. Maybe that was, that was progress in its own right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, much more from Dan in a minute. But first, let's find out who else is joining us today, shall With us on the Culture Bunker. Try saying that after three pints of lager. <laughs> he is a writer for The Guardian, Financial Times, Spectator, The Economist, Uncut, Quietus and more. He also unashamedly likes the metal they called heavy. 
He's called Michael Han. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I know why Dan won those awards from Stonewalls, because the upper echelons of Stonewall management are all very keen skiers. They spend a lot of time <laughs> in the ski bars in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. They saw you playing all the time. Those are their happiest memories. That's Dancing what it was. while drunk at pre-ski. That's what it was. The secret is out. Ski wall, etc. Um, more about you, Michael, though. You've, you've been to gigs. You've written about Teenage Fan Club. You've written about Sisters of Mercy. Sisters of Mercy. You have stood with the great, I would call them washed, but many, many may have been unwashed. I've stood with lots of people yes. and lots of and places. And how has this been? Uh, the first one that was properly full inside was Gorillas at the O2 and okay. 20,000 people. That felt odd. I mean, it wasn't terrifying because I'd been going to football matches. I'm a season ticket holder at QPR. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, fewer people at a QPR <laughs> going on a gorilla skin. But still, yeah. um, that felt curious. And I have to confess, I did leave four songs early because I thought I, I want to be on the tube before right. it's empty. I okay. don't want to be on the tube when it's all yeah, yeah. packed in like sardines. But a lot of uh, – we were talking about this before we went on, Sean, how uh, it's just so weird at the moment because so many people are just pretending – there, there was there was never a pandemic. Mm. It didn't happen. Mm. We're just carrying on. And But I'm in that kind of age group uh, – I'm not vulnerable. That's not what I meant. But that age group where these things do still occur to me. So I'm going to lots of shows, but I'm mm. standing at the back mm-hmm. or when it's a choice of going upstairs or downstairs, I'm going upstairs. I went to the end of the road festival. Yep. I barely went in any tents. Yep. It's kind of – yeah, maybe try and just take a little bit of care. I mean, you can still live a really normal life while taking a little bit of care. But mm. it does I d- it does feel incumbent upon me to not throw myself quite into the throng. But at the same time, at that Gorillaz gig, the crowd were incredible. You know, the response of people just mm. feeling so delighted to be out. Mm. Um, you know, there was a mosh pit that went halfway back on the O2 floor. People were cheering new songs. Imagine that. Cheering new songs <laughs> at an arena show. Don't People just wanted to be there. And every gig, I've, well, almost every gig I've been to, obviously not the Sisters of Mercy, um, the performers just seemed so delighted to be in front of people mm. again. At the end of the road, every single per- every single act I saw went, wow, people. Oh, my God, this is amazing. I know, it still is a novelty. I saw people last weekend and I'm <laughs> Still trying to recover. But, uh, but I, I've been doing plenty of stuff inside my house as well, mm. like talking to Dan Gillespie Sells. I know. About, is, <laughs> about his This musical. is the second time we've talked this week. Oh, is it? Yes. 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 Well, we'll get on to that. I have mentioned that later on in the show. Let's just do a quick reminder for new listeners and long-term followers alike. Sign up to support The Bunker on Patreon and you'll get all of our shows a day early without adverts. Plus, trendy, nay, on-point merchandise. There's also extras too, like our star guests choosing favourite records of all time. It's like your birthday, but every week a bit. That's The Culture Bunker at the weekend, our weekly politics panel show on Mondays for Patreon backers, the shorter Bunker dailies during the week, and then us. A whole new world will open up to you, we're sure. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And so a warm welcome again to Dan Gillespie Sells, singer with Surrey Boys, the soft rock-esque, the feeling. Some of you are Surrey, am I wrong? Some of no, you are, you're com- London, that's completely you? wrong, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> two of them are from Sussex. Okay, Sussex. And then the rest, and I'm from, I'm, I'm a London boy. <laughs> but what is a fact is you were the most played band on the radio in 2006. And apparently that's once every five minutes. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Well, I, don't, I haven't heard anyone complain. I mean, you know, right. years later, no one's coming up to I me. Mean, well, that was only Radio Suffolk as well. <laughs> <laughs> or Sussex or Surrey. Yeah, well, it was a big of the nest. No, but what happened was that was across 
four singles so i don't feel like it was quite okay. the 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 you know like because <laughs> everyone does go oh my god that song you know but luckily mm-hmm. with us it was across four singles so we kind of survived the you know we had four that all were number one radio records in the same year and so i think that's why because they were kind of all off the same album right. so it kind we kind of avoided having the um the love is all around effect yeah or whatever that was you know when those songs that just become so ubiquitous and you know, everyone's like please help get away <laughs> we can split it amongst four singles it was yeah a bit of a relief that worked out but that what, way. what's it like when you've written a song i mean obviously you wrote four of them but what's it like when you've written a song that you hear everywhere because sometimes you see it like when you're going to see say ben howard live and you you know he's not going to play his only love because he he obviously grew to hate hearing that in every way every motorway service station yes yes so those songs haunt you or do you feel grateful to them for bringing you an audience i think you go through through phases of that kind of stuff i mean when it first happened in the uk that that year we'd spent most of the year in america and germany and other territories so actually we kind of missed them the real height mm, of it mm. you know we kind of set it all up mm. by doing tours and, tours and tours and tours <laughs> and then we scarpered <laughs> to a place where nobody was playing us while they were playing us here so we weren't really here for it but you know to this day if, if i ever walk into a B and Q or something. I will hear. <laughs> I will hear a weird version of one of my songs. It isn't sung by me, but it's sung by a sound alike. And that, that, that's a weird thing, you know. You just go, wow. That is a weird. Someone's thing. job it is to try and copy me and then try and do a version of my song, but like not the version because it's cheaper or something. It's really bizarre. <laughs> They'll never be as pointy. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did, you ever, did you ever foresee yourself being the voice of DIY in the UK? Um, that was always the dream. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to talk about everybody's talk. Matt Jamie, which features appearances also from Sharon Horgan, Sarah Lancashire, Shobna Galati, Richard E. Grant, plus Lauren Patel as Pretty, and of course Max Harwood as Jamie himself. Based on a real story, which was once a BBC show called Jamie, Drag Queen at 16. The musical that's out on Amazon expands on the stage show, and it must be said it is filled to the disco rafters with bangers. So we're going to listen to a tiny bit of the trailer and then talk to you about it. Cool. So, why do you want to be on the stage? I want to be a drag queen. Because it's all I ever dream of. And when I close my eyes, it's all I can see. If Jamie wants to come to prom, he comes just just like all the other boys. You are a freak. They made me feel so ugly. I'm scared. You can't just be a boy in a dress, Jamie. A boy in a dress is something to be laughed at. A drag queen should be feared. You won't believe the power it gives you. I don't just want to be one. I have to be one. Stop waiting for permission to be you. So, Dan, congrats first off, because the film is out today. It's the big weekend. The film is about a boy who quite simply wants to become a drag queen. How did you get the gig? I had met a, a, a mate. I met someone who was, who was a writer and he became a, a mate of mine, this mm. guy Tom. He'd done some stuff like uh, he'd written a couple of Doctor Who episodes and and a really talented comedy writer had a show called called Threesome on Comedy Central at the time and and I bumped into him on a anti Pope rally <laughs> many years ago it was one of those things that Ratzinger was in town and everyone was like we were all like had big banners that said fuck the Pope and but wear a condom we were on this march and so. I met Tom and then I said, I was like, I've always wanted to write a musical and you're a writer, so shall we do it? We just started, literally two of us very, very keenly just started writing songs randomly mm. and then bumped into, oh, we were going to start going to loads, see loads of shows, see loads of theatre shows and see if we could kind of learn a little bit about it. And then we bumped into Michael Ball at one of them and I'd just done his show with the band. He was covering for Wogan on Radio 2 and I went and did his show. So I, I spoke mm. to him about it then and I said, well, come come to the 
come to the studio and have a listen to what we're doing. And he very kindly did. And introduced us to a director because he was like, you don't know what you're doing, really. But I think you've got something, but you really don't know what you're doing. So you should probably go and meet um, a director who can who can show you the ropes and put us in touch with Jonathan Butterell, who'd literally just arrived from Broadway after having worked on Broadway for 10 years. So he's a Sheffield lad. Mm. And the first thing he did arriving back into the UK was go to the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield and speak to them about what 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 they yeah, wanted yeah. to do next. and. And he said to them, well, I don't want to do an old piece. I want to do something new. And what if what if we adapt this documentary I've seen into a musical? And the Crucible said, sounds like a great idea. Why don't you go and find some writers? And that's when Michael Ball called him, said, I've met these two writers. Mm. And it was just serendipity. The timing was perfect. Yeah. And he came to my birthday party and said, I've got a new story for you. Do you want to write it? And we both said, yep. Um, and we went up to the Crucible, had a meeting. And then that day went into the wig room because it was the only space there was, this little wig room they've got up there. So we were sitting in there surrounded by wigs, <laughs> writing on a scrap of paper what we thought the outline could be based on the documentary but also expanded somewhat. Kind of came up with a plot for it and that plot hasn't changed. That's mm. that stayed the same for you know, six years later. It's kind of been in the West End for three years and, and the movie is, is, is the same thing. It's the same story. It's mm. just, you know, just kind of um, you do the movie thing with it which is, means you can deepen it and you can... You can expand on those yeah. storylines, and you can you can thread new new detail in, you know, mm-hmm. which you can't do on stage. So, mm-hmm. so that's how it all came about, you know. So, what were the challenges? So you're used to writing three or four minute pop songs, and as you say, to draw the ski crowd is uh, yeah, where right. you come yeah. from. Yeah. When you're writing a narrative of songs that will last over a two hour period, and partly telling the story, yes, um, and partly reflecting on it, what's the different job there? Actually, the director was brilliant. Jonathan mm. Butterell was brilliant because what he said was, Dan, you just write an album. Tom, right. you write a screenplay. Let's not try and be anything we're not, you know, and, and really let us just kind of do it that way. And he said, I'll figure it out. I'll guide you. And he did. He was an amazing guide. But he didn't make us feel like we were doing anything particularly different to what we do already. There's an mm. element of storytelling in the feeling stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it was probably the seed was sown by a review quite early on in our career, which was a bit sniffy. And they said, you know, some of these songs sound a bit of musical theatre as far as we're concerned. And, right. and I think it was meant as a as meant disparagingly, but I kind of took it as a bit of a compliment, really. And I was like, OK, fine. <laughs> and that sowed the seed somehow. And then and so I, I just carried on telling stories through music. It was it was actually very liberating. After four or five albums with the band, I was really scraping the barrel when it came to like talking about my own inner thoughts and mm. inner psyche. There's only so much I could dredge up, you know, and I didn't want to repeat myself. And I felt like I was repeating myself yeah, and all yeah. that stuff, you know, about about trying to kind of like figure out what you want to say as a writer. When I was suddenly writing for a middle aged woman with a teenage boy or a teenage girl in the bedroom talking to her best mate or, you know, you suddenly get these characters or a whole mm. school full of excitable kids who've just seen a drag show the night before I'm kind of like okay fine I've got this new voice that I can write for and it was very liberating Mm. and I felt like I was still putting a lot of myself into it but I was liberated by the whole story and and it gave us kind of purpose for a song Presumably though Dan the songs have to do different things I mean if you're writing for an album you've got three and a half minutes and really you need to deliver choruses that people are going to recognise but when you're writing a song for a musical you need to get the audience from one point at the start of the song to another, to another point. point at yes. the end of the song, don't you? I like a song, I, yeah, I'm, but I'm careful about not making a song do too much heavy lifting. It's a balance, I think, because I don't really like musical theatre songs where they're going, we're going to make tea, we're going to get this, and then we're doing that, and then what's happening now, everyone? Oh, this is happening now, and they, they move plot too yes. much. I go, I go, why are you singing this? You know, 
Um, sometimes a song in a musical can just deepen your understanding of a character at that moment. It can let you into their psyche, and that's enough. Or sometimes, sometimes it will really move things along. Yeah.、Mm. Um, I don't like it when a song. You know, it's it's hard to maintain a song for even three minutes when an audience is focused on a story. If the song is doing nothing, of course, and if they're just singing and dancing at you, I call that an aggressive act because I just sit there in the theatre going, <laughs> "Stop dancing at me! Stop <laughs> singing at me!" I find it so like you know, I. I I hate I hate so much musical theatre, really, to be honest. Yeah. Because I find so much of it is just people singing and dancing at me for no real reason.、Mm. So、I think I, everyone that loves a lot of it hates a lot of it. Yeah, it's true. It's you, true. If you're into it, well, then you have when, stuff you like and stuff you really hate. Because when it's when it's when it's not great, it's really not great. And I yeah, it really is people singing at you sometimes. And I so so I do want the songs to have a purpose, but. I've tried to find a purpose for the songs that that suits my voice as a songwriter as well. So,、mm. so you know, often it's it's a character trying to persuade another character that they can do something or they should do something, and that that's that can be a song. Or sometimes a song can be a reaction to something、mm. horrible that's happened to them, and it's more of a reaction than it is an action. And that's interesting for a song as well to be that. So, lots of different things. But but pop music. I sometimes think it's 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 what people have on on the radio when they're driving the kids to school、mm. and and they're dropping them off at swimming on a Wednesday night or karate on a Tuesday night and or it's or it's what's on whilst they're cooking and it's it is a different thing than an audience which is sat engrossed in a story and you know real captive audience and and you're taking them away from the story if you if you do it wrong and so I think what you need to do is. Layer a lot more detail. You're much more specific about lyrics.、Mm. You can't afford to do a kind of cute, clever line that doesn't really mean anything but sounds great. Which I do all the time in pop music. <laughs> I'm always and often I'm doing it because the rhyme sets up something I want to say in the next line. I can't afford to do that in musical theatre.、Yeah. Every single phrase and every single line has to be right on for the story. Otherwise, the audience is going, "What was that? Was I supposed to? Was I supposed to listen to that? Is that going to be something that comes in later?" They're much more switched yeah, on. Absolutely.、So、I think I've learned precision. In songwriting for musical theatre, in a way that I just didn't need it in pop music.、Mm. Were you inspired by anything? You say there is ba- there are bad musicals. Let's not mention them. What are the good musicals? <laughs> Did you go back and watch things? I, yeah, I think musical. The other thing that's weird about musical theatre is there is certain you get a pass if you lo- if you learn a musical when you're a kid. Yeah, it gets a pass no matter how bad it is because some people like love. Terrible musicals, but because they were kind of switched onto them when they were young, they will always love them. So, and, what's this? Well, so, so, I wonder what this is leading to. Well, no, because I'm obsessed with Rocky Horror Picture Show,、oh, right. and、okay. I, I grew up with it, and I know it's flawed, which like, is referenced in the, of course, the and it's not, the yeah,、film. and it's not a perfect show, of、mm. course, but because I grew up with it, I think it's like the best thing ever, and I will always、mm. think it's the best perfect musical. But it isn't, I know, but but I mean, Little Shop of Horrors, Ashman and Menken's writing is just so flawless.、Um, so I love Little Shop of Horrors when I was growing up.、And、my dad was a big fan of B movie culture and these kind of slightly more kind of bit left field weird musicals, and he loved Tommy. Something occurred to me, which hadn't occurred to me when I saw it in the theatre. It's a Marvel origin story. Andrew、mm. will love this. Oh from, yes, from, it's a superhero from the cover. Of course, it is. Drag、yes. queens are superheroes. Yeah, yeah. And this is her origins mm. story. Mm. Oh wow! This is yeah, how you're right, you're she、right. became the superhero. <laughs>、mm. The narrative structure is exactly that.、Right. The trauma、yes. that beats a person、yes. into something that is actually superhuman.、Mm. And 
Um, it was it was a real sort of lovely light bulb moment. Oh, so me. so I'm going to use that if you don't mind. I don't forward. mind I'll be at like, all. I'll be like, yeah, this is, okay, yeah, you're right. want to talk about the story. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, that's what it really is. Well, I also but, want to mention, though, Anne Dudley did some of the arrangements. Is that and right? Dudley, now, she's been a guest on our show and she is just one of my enormous heroes. She is extraordinary. Yes. I, I I was referencing Trevor Horn quite mm. a lot because, okay. you know, on, on various tracks I was working on for the film and then, and then the idea of Anne Dudley came into my yeah. head, you know, because I was like, I was actually running out of time. That was one of the things. I was trying to score the whole thing myself mm. plus adapt all the stuff and then be on set all the time and, and someone said, why don't you just get a proper composer in to help you? I was like, <laughs> yes, okay, that's a good idea. I never scored a film before, so I'm mm. I'm doing it, but I'm like, you know, I'm really making a mess of it. And and Anne so graciously agreed to come on board and help me with the arrangements, but also be the kind of co-composer of the score. Mm. Um, but using themes from the songs and, you know, so and she was I mean, for someone with, with that track record and that that kind of experience, um, she was so kind and generous and brilliant and collaborative. It was really quite extraordinary. And I loved working with Anne. She was brilliant. She intimidated the hell out of me at first, but then <laughs> I learned I learned that she's actually incredibly sweet and kind. So it was, yeah, that was a real honour. Mm, mm. No, I saw her name. You had a couple more questions before we move on. I did. Um, mm. So full right. disclosure, it may be hard to fathom looking at this vision of butchness <laughs> that you see now. But when I came out, I came out in drag. So 17 years wow. old, yeah. um, I stood at the balcony of a gay bar above the town square, mm. literally, in a white wedding dress and sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. <laughs> Did you have a name? That is how... No, give, no, oh, okay. I just... That is how I came out. Wow. wow to you, you, my family in my town. Um, <laughs> that was more um, that you exploded out. Yeah. I mean, it's coming out and then Not the most out. thoughtful thing to do in <laughs> retrospect. But anyway, so but what I wanted to say is that sometimes when you're that age and you're looking for what it is to be gay, you overshoot <laughs> or a lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I find is femininity just as much a trap as masculinity for young gay men do is it is it as much of a danger to get stuck in this entertaining persona this dazzling glittery persona that that is an armor and, I, yes. and not be yourself which will have butch moments and femme moments yeah i think i think i think that's really partly what the discussion between Hugo, our older drag queen character, and, and Jamie's character is, mm. is about Hugo going, you've got to have armour, you've got to be, you've got to have all of this, you've got to create a backstory, you've got to be this yeah. kind of ferocious thing, otherwise you just won't survive. And that's Hugo's story, because Hugo's story is attached to, you know, Section 28 and, 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 yeah. and you know, a kind of political landscape that was less accepting and, and he was more under threat. So he did have to become tough. And Jamie's generation has a slightly different story. And we wanted to explore the different story. When Jamie finally shows up at prom, he's a boy in a dress, which is the one thing that Hugo says he can't be. Mm. You know, mm. a boy in a dress is something to be laughed at, but a drag queen is something to be feared. Mm. And actually, Jamie realises that a boy in a dress is what he wants to be it's not a drag queen and you know he'll do drag of course but he doesn't have to always be a drag queen and i think that the in a world so full of identity politics to have a story where identity loosens as opposed to tightens mm. is mm. the thing that 
the public react to. And I think the reason we have a, an audience which is goes beyond LGBT world and beyond musical theatre world, I think, is partly because people feel really lifted when they see people's identity loosening. Mm. There's something about all these barriers between us. Are something, yeah. you know, part of identity politics is a double-edged sword for, for queer people because we use identity to protect ourselves. We use identity. But I always say that identity is not our weapon. It's their weapon. And I think when we take identity and make it our weapon, I think we're sometimes harming ourselves because really – it's it's just a means to an end. It's not. It shouldn't be the final goal. Mm-hmm. Is this identity and a definition and a definition? Yeah. It should be about okay. We can use identity, and we need to use identity for solidarity reasons, for loads of reasons, and particularly in the past. But I think now we're getting to a place where I feel like can we? It's when we let go of identity. It's when the the bully is less, a little bit less of the obvious bully. It's when the teacher lets go and becomes a little bit less the kind of authoritarian. It's when yeah. and when Jamie becomes a little bit less the drag queen and more just the boy in the dress mm. that everyone just kind of goes, mm-hmm. oh, and they kind of, it's really uplifting for an audience yes. to see that happen. Everyone feels more together. Everybody's talking about Jamie is out now on Amazon Prime streaming. Watch it, but watch it in your high heels, I would say. Right, for our Patreon subscribers only, we now have a tune from one of our guests. Their editor's recommendation, Michael Han, what have you picked out from the sea of new releases? My track is Mudrin by <laughs> Melin, Melin uh, who I saw at noon on the Saturday of the End of the Road Festival, mm-hmm. and they are the latest in that long line of Welsh eccentrics that goes back to Super Fairy Animals, uh, Gorky's Zygotic Monkey, um, Buzzard, 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 all those groups that we've had over the last 30 years. I knew nothing about them when I went to see them. I had not heard a note of their music, and they delighted me. They have a song about the rivalry between Jelly and Blamange, which I think is always a good subject for rock music. Um, How old are they? <laughs> well, they're not 12, that's the thing. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to show they're not 16 either. No, unspecified age. Okay. But they also had, which delighted me in other circumstances, it probably would have really annoyed me, but that day it delighted me. They had someone in a wig and a white lab coat on stage doing a shit painting. Now, I could see that the audience might have just thought it was someone with an easel in front of them, but I was standing at the side of stage and I could see they really were doing a I've shit painting. I've done a painting. painting on stage, but that's another story. Yeah, but you can paint, Sean. <laughs> this person... It's terrifying. I'm it's not... Really. Sa- I'm I'm not okay. saying the art was primitive, right? but I, I loved them. I really, really loved them. There are a few tracks on Spotify. Um, I recommend them to anyone who likes Welsh eccentric psychedelia. And remember, all the tracks played on today's show are going to be on our Spotify playlist. Netflix hit comedy drama Sex Education centres on the adorably wide-eyed Otis Milburn, played by the adorably wide-eyed Asa Butterfield. Otis starts out as probably the person with the least sexual experience in his school. He's also, however, the son of noted sex therapist Jean Milburn, played by a magnetic Gillian Anderson, and thus encyclopedically knowledgeable about sexual problems. So he sets up a sex clinic at his school, through which a hilarious parade of teen dysfunction marches. The first two seasons have been a gigantic success for Netflix, both critically and with younger audiences. In season three which dropped in its entirety and ready for binging this weekend. Our baby's all grown up. (laughs) He even has a tash. Here's a little taste. We don't run their clinic anymore. We grew apart. Sure you're okay? Yeah, I'm fine, honestly. Look, I understand that you're not ready to tell your mum, but... If you're not all in, then I can't be with you. 
Life is fragile. People make mistakes. If you love someone, <laughs> you should tell them that you love them. Because it might be too late. What did it say? Michael, what did you think of it? What do you think of it? I had not watched Sex Education before this week. Um, <laughs> I have had been working my way through. So I've watched all the se- I watched all of season one. I've got on season two and the first of season three, which only dropped two hours before we started recording. <laughs> so yeah. that's why no one has watched the whole thing. Um, now, a couple of things intrigued me. First, um, the music, uh, which is very carefully chosen, evidently by someone of almost exactly my age and my tastes, because I have no idea which 16-year-olds in the current world are sitting around listening to Like an Angel by the Mighty Lemon Drops. Matt Biffa uh, the- and Chiara Elwes, apparently, are the music supervisors. Okay. Are they exactly? The music the is superb. Well, in and in, uh, it doesn't appear to be in the, the new series, but the, in the first to first series especially Ezra Furman who mm. is one of my musical heroes uh, provides a lot of it which is great but the other thing that really interested me is that this show I mean it's set in we, I understand why it is set in a place like this it's, although it's in Wales this incredibly diverse <laughs> school where lots of Asian kids uh, British Asian kids lots of British black kids uh, there are gay kids straight kids not sure uh, certainly in what I've seen so far there aren't any kids with um, with uh, non-binary kids um, but everything else is fantastically diverse but in a way it's not because everyone in sex education regardless of their background is middle class you know the the, mm. the heroine mm. the young woman who lives in a trailer park Maid. deserted by May yeah. deserted by her parents she is middle class you know it doesn't matter what your your race your level of prosperity your level of education is in sex education you're all middle class I don't know if that's unconscious in the writing or a deliberate thing to allow all the characters to interact without misunderstanding. Mm. So they have a shared set of cultural assumptions which allows them all for the purposes of the show to have sex with each other, <laughs> if you see what I mean. <laughs> but it, it's, it is really, really striking. Um, now, you kind of go into shows like this anticipating that there'll be, yeah, there'll be some diversion from reality. Of course, it's a comedy. It's not about real school life. <laughs> but it's... It's not related to real life at all. And it makes you wonder who it's actually made for. Mm. Is it made for kids who are sort of dreaming about what would my ideal teen life be like? Or is it made for parents kind of who actually have probably had, one would hope, more sex than their kids at this point, um, to go, yeah, well, those are the days, eh, when we weren't having sex like that because no real teenagers are having sex like that. It's a warm-hearted show. It makes me laugh. But there's also a real streak of cruelty in it. It's interesting it doesn't deal with some of the kind of more conventional modern technological forms of cruelty too much, although obviously there are nude photos shared. Mm, There are references. Yeah, there are. But there's a real sense of cruelty that can suddenly switch back to kindness very, very quickly. And the cruelty I find quite jarring and unnerving in a show that is good-hearted. I mean, I accept that the Mm. the world is full of cruelty, but... (laughs) Sometimes the level of it in this program is like, whoa, where, where did that come from? That's just vicious. Okay, I, d- I agree with some of that and disagree with some of that before I taint the discussion. Dan, have you uh, watched any of it? I did watch all of season one and two um, when they came out. Yeah. Absolutely loved that show. I I... I suppose I mean maybe I can blame we can blame musical theatre for this slightly, but you know it, <laughs> it, it it is complete musical fantasy. 
you know it's it's in that world of of kind of shiny shiny you know unreal it feels like it's kind of it looks like an american high school it you know it looks completely transatlantic bizarre kind of not real world it might as well be sci-fi you know it's this kind of strange hinterland but i think that's that's almost like a musical theater trait you know it's like greece where they where it's you're basically watching a cartoon you know these Mm. 30 somethings all (laughs) pretending to be school kids and and you know in fact they even put a cartoon at the beginning of greece which i think was all Almost a bit of a kind of primer to go. Don't take this too seriously. You know, don't don't imagine this as being anything to do with the real world. And I agree with you. The lack of working class characters. Mm. That is exactly what it is. But then I'm finding that happening in quite a lot of drama. You know what I mean? I think it's a mm. sin was completely lacking in any working classness at all. Like mm. It was bizarre how how millennial those kids were. Mm. You know, <laughs> set in the eighties, they're just completely millennial kids. Mm. At least this mm. is set now with millennial kids being very millennial. You know, it was it was. Yeah, it, I mean, maybe Netflix being intended for an international audience, it can't have the class that's obsession. What that's what I assumed. That was Britain has that Britain has. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's just it's not there. It, you oh, know, right. the the biggest class in Greece. Where I come from is probably petit bourgeois. It's working class people trying to pretend they're middle class. It's that kind of, you know. But but there yeah. isn't that very clear stratification. Yeah, it, I don't. I well, I disagree with you here. Um, <laughs> because but, oh, yes, we have our obsession with class, but it didn't need to be a show that's obsessed with class. But because even in American dramas, yeah. there are class differences mm. in the high school mm. dramas. There are. Yeah, but there are none here. There are no class differences. There are just differences in income and race. Those are the only differences. Other than that, all assumptions are the same, which I I guess... I mean, I agree with an aspect of what you're saying because I think the the only... I went on a journey with this thing. So I started off because everyone loved it Mm. and I felt that, Mm. like Wagner... I had to learn to, this to appreciate <laughs> it. He loves it, he, he loves, he loves yeah. it. Um, and I failed at the first attempt, and then I had a second go at it, mm. and I went a little bit further and ended up absolutely loving it as, yes. I, as I watched the second series. Because I think, for me, the problem was that it's a, it's a show about sex, mm. and the first season you could name... Uh, to paraphrase Cole Porter, um, poor Otis regrets he's unable to wank today. Mm. <laughs> um, so there is actually no one, you know, coming in it. And when he gets to that stage at the end, yeah. season two starts with a, a sort of joy of discovering <laughs> masturbation. And that, yeah. for me, lifted the show and made it actually genuinely mm. funny mm. Uh, in parts and genuinely relatable. But I do agree with what you say. But in in terms of the eloquence of the characters, th- that's where you need to suspend a boatload of disbelief. Absolutely, yeah. right. All that speak you have like this we wish school. we could speak when we were yeah, that exactly. Age, you, know? you have yeah. this entire school populated by Diane Keatons and Woody Allen's, yes. a- a- essentially yeah, yeah. being very open about this. I mean, my school at that age. Three quarters of the people could only basically grunt with hormonal (laughs) misery, Mm. (laughs) let alone open themselves Mm. up about. It's really not the sort of thing I'd normally watch. 
I do really wonder who it's for. The lines, I mean, the script saves it. It's for I me and the, Dan, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it's it. the script that really takes it apart. It's Gillian Anderson's character, I think, also that anchors it and pulls it through from being something that is just a lot. I have a teenage son, so this makes me mm. feel uncomfortable deeply. But also, I remember being a teenager. No one has that much sex as a teenager. It may happen later on, but then when you really don't know what you're doing, it doesn't. And there's so much misunder- misinformation, misunderstanding. So they're also incredibly enlightened, but that that's the point, isn't it? They call it at one point, they refer to it as the sex school because of all these scandals mm, and this chlamydia mm. outbreak, all this sort of thing, which is absolutely hilarious. But I still don't know if it fits, how it jars, who is watching it, who's it for. I feel uncomfortable. I know, maybe I think my son should watch it, but he'd feel uncomfortable with me telling him that. Yes. Because yes. I think it's educational. And as a, the title says, sex education, it's saying there's male pleasure there's female pleasure it's really quite on it for that and i really liked it about that 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 frank discussion but yes it's fantasy land this is not a I, there was a moment in the life. first episode of the new series that just dropped that i thought was wonderful where mm. um you know the, there's a boy and a girl and he basically is unable to make her come mm. yeah. and then he gets loads of advice and goes at it and she has a terrific time yeah. so we we so we break back to <laughs> yeah. them and she's glowing and screaming oh, with pleasure I think and then yeah. she says she turns around to him and says I still didn't come but if that was much better and I thought what a wonderful wonderful empowering thing mm. to put in a in a mm. in a comedy drama that's directed at teenagers that sometimes it may not be spectacular but it can be better you yeah. know it's something that oh, they it, talk about that all the time all the women are, or the girls in this are going yeah but you don't have to be performative you don't have to do this you can just have fun don't you know, I've got that message I'll, I'll tell you who it's for Sean it's for Ofsted inspectors who go thank god I don't have to go to that school it's a sex school <laughs> is, is, one, what would they get they wouldn't get outstanding can I ask one last question poor. is Gillian Anderson Literally the only person on earth that is hotter now than 30 fucking years ago. Are and how annoying table, is that? Are we not? I was, how having, I was is having that exact thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not, not looking at you, looking at her. I was having that exact yes. thought. You didn't know me 30 mm. years I didn't ago. <laughs> you would have loved me in my Evita days. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean to insult you there. That's not what I meant. What I meant was looking at Gillian, Gillian Anderson. I had that thought about her. Not looking at you it's I had fine. that thought about it's her it's fine yeah she is she's tremendous in this and she was the, the one who really pulls it together she is the sex therapist yeah. isn't she and she is I, I think fantastic. It's, it's wonderful I think it's generous and warm hearted and I mm. recommend it highly and she's such a great um, under actor as well and Jemima Kirk uh, who's come into the third series mm. as the new headmaster yes. and obviously oh, yes. I want to villain to be yes. I think will be very very delicious to watch so that dropped on uh, Netflix today Time for another song selection from one of our guests, Dan Gillespie Sells. What have you brought in today? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna include controversially, I'm going to I'm going to say we should play the new ABBA, one of the new ABBA songs. And actually I'm gonna go for the ABBA song, which is the slower one, the more dramatic one, which I believe is called I Still Have Faith in You. It's the musical theatre ABBA song, you know, of the new ones. It's, it's like something out of chess. chess it's, it's got yes. a little bit of that kind of vibe to it. 
I mean, it's not perfect. It's lacking in a certain kind of sheen and sharpness of, of the, that you get on a on an ABBA record. It's lacking a certain amount of sparkle. And if I was in there, I would have been like, where's the tack piano? Where's the 12-string <laughs> guitar? I would have been sparkling it up even more. But it is beautiful to hear those voices. And, it's, and that one suits her, her, the older voices, the older female voices. Um, and... It's sophisticated like an ABBA song. It has all that sophistication and those beautiful changes. And musically speaking, it just delivers. And and it's also, I think it's got enough kind of ABBA madness going on for (laughs) for it to be a great ABBA track. It feels Mm. like, you know... It feels like a uh, something off of Voulez-Vous or something. You know, there are certain like album, album ABBA tracks. Even Arrival has some uh, really slightly bonkers kind of stuff on it. It's like a deep dive ABBA moment, you know, <laughs> and you kind of hear these songs. And, and to hear a new ABBA song is kind of an extraordinarily weird and brilliant <laughs> thing. To, and, and, and yeah, and it does, it does, it took me a couple of listens, but it does move me and it does bring me into into that weird ABBA world that that only ABBA can do. I mean, only ABBA can get me anywhere close to that weird emotional state i don't know why i just i went i went through years of hating abba by the way i mean mm. I went to, especially you know growing up a queer kid in a queer family you know if i i, I would throw <laughs> something at someone if they played dancing queen to me because like, you know it was like oh it was like, mm. it's like i will survive or something it's yeah, like bloody yeah. hell you know do i have to ever hear that again <laughs> but i've gone full circle i've kind of like you know several times i've gone gone back on abba and gone yeah it just gets better the more i listen to mm. it you know dancing queen is one of the perfect one of the most perfect works of are, as far as I'm concerned, of, of, of modern times, because it just, it just the visceral effect of it on people is unbelievable, and I think that there's still there's some of that alive in ABBA still, and I'm glad to see it. No genre was saturated with substandard productions and found footage nonsense more than horror during the pandemic, and there is no genre for which the darkness and communal experience of the cinema is more essential yeah. as much as it is in horror. That is where we go to grab a stranger, mostly figuratively, but occasionally, literally, to indicate, yes, that made me jump too. So I, and a very familiar guest, stepped into the blackness to feast on three innocent releases and dismember them for your delectation. And I'm here with my very, very special guest, who you might recognise. It's Naomi Smith. Uh, regular Oh God What Now and Bunker Stalwart and Chief Executive of Best for Britain. But what you may not know is that Naomi, like me, is a proper horror nut. Um, we have endless WhatsApp conversations about <laughs> what horror film to watch next. <laughs> Don't we, Naomi? Hello, yeah, welcome. That, hello. Leavers probably think that we just like chat endlessly, remoting on and on. <laughs> and would be very disappointed to know that a good 95% of our WhatsApp messages are about either food or, or zombies. horror films or what food we're going to eat while watching a horror film. Or what food we're going to eat if the zombie apocalypse actually happens. Absolutely. What to stop for? So we saw uh, three films this week to satisfy our... Um, you know, deferred, <laughs> our deferred hunger for decent big horror productions, which had been put on hold during the pandemic. Um, shall we start with Malignant? So we start yes. with Malignant first, out in the cinemas now. So yeah. gives a, gives a, a, a summary, as it were. Okay, so I've not done review shows before, so I'm going to do my level best. Okay. To, no spoilers. But Malignant... 
borrows very heavily, I would say, from several different genres. Um, so there's a lot of haunted house in there. There's a lot of demonic possession style stuff in there. Yeah. There's definitely psychological thriller elements um, and a bit of cop killer genre in there yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't, I hadn't um, thought of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of tries to blend all of those into one. And I'm not sure it succeeds brilliantly at any one of those, but it's, you know, it's moving the genre on a bit, I guess, by 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 doing that hybrid. And basically, yeah, there is your main character and she is predicting murders that are taking place. And then yeah. she realizes that they're not, she's not just fantasy. She's not just dreaming them. These things are actually happening. And the rest of the story unfurls as to how we find out who done it. I thought uh, the whole thing was campy but mm. fun visually definitely borrowed elements from japanese horror i thought there were scenes that um, really looked like that could have come out of ring there's obviously a big twist at the end and the twist at the end is so utterly camp and ludicrous that for a moment, I considered absolutely loathing it, but in the end, I came out loving it. <laughs> Next, shall we talk about Werewolves Within, which is uh-huh. the the more indie uh, mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. Um, I'll try and give a summary of that. So um, we're talking maybe Fargo country. That's quite a good analogy. We're talking about a very small village in a very rural, very snowy, mountainous Mm -hmm. area. And it gets a new uh, ranger, gets a new park ranger, um, who is sort of the town's only authority figure, really. So, you know, he could have been a sheriff. He could have been a whole load of things, but, you know, park ranger will do. Walks into a town inhabited by a very kooky group of characters, let's say, um, occasionally stretching credibility kooky characters, like it includes a massive tech entrepreneur millionaire. And I never really understood why that person and his boyfriend would live in that place. I I never really got it. But it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting because it was like, it was like randomly selected almost. It is a a kids film, right? (laughs) I I watched it. Definitely not. That's a really good kids film. No, I don't Um, think it's a kids film because there's quite a lot of swearing and there's quite... Yes, but you know how our views on swearing uh, over on over what now we're we're pretty pretty liberal when it comes to that. But I, I, I think 11 to 13s would love it. I think it's an indie rom-com with werewolves. I, right. that, that's how I describe it. And I don't think that's a spoiler of any sort because it's in the bloody title. Uh, so it's not quite Fargo country. It's not quite that far west. It's actually Vermont. Uh, and I think that helps to explain some of the kookiness because it's obviously Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah, okay. So it's upstate. And so you, it's, it it's got that New England vibe 
going mm. on, which is why there are, maybe it's slightly more plausible that you've got a, a, a bit more of an eclectic, diverse group of people living there. It's quite slapstick in its humour, so I guess it's a comedy horror genre is, yeah, is where it would fall. Um, I think if you've got some bored 11 to 13-year-olds around Halloween that want to watch something that you know isn't going to give them nightmares and, and cause them to, to not sleep all night, but they want to sort of watch something a little bit grown up yeah uh, it, it's a great film to put put in front of young teenagers yeah um what did i think of it i thought there were things about it i liked uh i really liked the fact that the horror scenario really brought out the very worst in the people in that small town and in many ways they were the horror throughout, you know, the way they turned onto each other was the really interesting part of it. What didn't I like? Um, I don't think the the whole thing came together at all. The scares weren't scary. The jokes weren't funny enough. You know, the characters were interesting. The direction was interesting. The the, um, acting was, I think, very good throughout. But none of those elements were pulled together to make a, a narrative arc of any sort, it could have been a it could have been a collection of yeah. sketches. Yeah, as far yeah, as I yeah. can see. I mean, it, I, I could feel that it was trying to be a mixture of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, um, Shaun of the Dead because it's comedy horror, Hot mm. Fuzz because it's that kind of you know the new cop in town yeah, yeah, yeah. having to deal with the crazy fuckers, um, and mixed with maybe somebody who'd been a fan of Dog Soldiers, which if listeners haven't watched it is a brilliant werewolf film that I commend to everyone, but it didn't blend them successfully enough for me um, as a as an adult consumer of horror. Mm. And the last film we're going to talk about, and in many many ways the pick of the bunch, is A Quiet Place Part Two which was my cinema um, joy deferred by the pandemic. It was something I was really, really looking forward to because I loved the first film. And then the premiere basically got cancelled because of COVID and kept being pushed back and back and back. And so it was a a real joy to finally put that hoodoo to rest and watch the second part of this film. What did you think of it? Well, um, I think you and I are slightly different on this one. I enjoyed Quiet Place 1, but I wouldn't watch it again. It, you know, it, films have to meet a Yeah, that's because you know nothing about reason. nothing, basically. <laughs> but I much preferred 2 because, as I've said, I'm much more into the dystopian elements yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of horror. Once society has completely broken down all of the support structures, all of the hope, all of the places you would normally turn to for help, have abandoned you and what happens to the human condition in that situation. And that's probably why I work on Brexit uh, most of the time, because, you know, I'm into dystopian apocalyptic awfulness. Um, The beginning of the film, I think, is a bit confusing. It jumps around. I think it's trying to remind people what happened in Quiet Place One slash uh, a catch up for anyone that hadn't seen that film. Mm, mm. Um, And uh, I think it's slightly hard for us to stick with it um, after the first 10 minutes. 
And I think what it does very effectively is to build anxiety. And you've just got this steady drumbeat throughout. Um, you've got, I think, very good performances from British and Irish actors, Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy in the lead yeah. roles. But the absolute stellar performance, again, as I think Millicent. it really was in Quiet Place 1, is from the deaf actor, yeah. Millicent, uh, Millicent Simmons. Um, uh, Simmons, who plays Reagan, and her little brother, um, Marcus, who's played by Noah Duke. I also think that because you've already suspended your disbelief in Quiet Place One, that there are these uh, animals that have evolved to land on Earth, but can't swim and can't see you, but can hear you, because you've already had to sort of get over that, that, that suspension of belief about how they would have evolved. You're not having to do that watching uh, the, the second one. It's in the genre of Cloverfield, uh, War of the Worlds, Tom Cruise version, uh, World War Z, um, which do this genre, I would argue, better. But this is still a good film. Um, and I would see it again in a way I probably wouldn't watch the first one again, which I suspect might be the opposite of you, Alex. It, um I would watch both of them happily again. I would watch the first one again and again and again and again. I think the the closest proximal uh, comparison I could make between the two films as a two-film pair. I'm not saying they're as good as that, but I think it's a it's a close parallel to say alien aliens. Ooh. Why do I... I'm not saying they're as good as that, but what I'm saying is that they cross genres in a very clever way in that the first alien is a suspense movie. It's whole thing. It's whole thing is about not being able to see what's in the dark. It's about not knowing what this creature is, how it behaves. The second one, not needing to establish all those things and do a lot of exposition, can is more firmly in the action horror genre. And I think that's why I'm saying it's quite a good comparison. What's your out of 10 score for Quite Place 2? I think I'd give it mm, a 7, uh, probably, yeah. And I'd give a, the first one a, a solid 8. What would you give it? I I think I can live with a 7 out of 10 for Quite All Place right. 2. All right, that's good. That's yeah. good. Um, Naomi, thank you very much for this horror fest. We shall do it again very soon. I think it was just wonderful to be able to see big films again. Yeah. And finally, blubber be good to me. (laughs) The North Water is the new BBC drama set on a whaling boat in the mid-19th century, not to be confused with Vigil, which is set on a present-day submarine, nor with The Terror, set on a doomed Arctic mission in the uh, mid-19th century. Starring Colin Farrell, Stephen Graham, Tom Courtney and more, if you're after more sullen boat action and mysterious, slightly kinky deaths, this is the show for you. Let's listen to give us a feel for the choppy waters and long, lingering undercurrents. You know what people call us whalers? They say we're refugees from civilization. Welcome aboard, Mr. Summer. I'm a man who's scared of himself. Ain't much of a man in my book. You think I'm scared? You have no idea what I am. There's too much ice at this time of year. You're putting us all at great risk. Michael Han, I'm going to start with you. How are your sea legs? Uh, well, they're fairly well established because obviously I watched The Terror earlier this year. Um, <laughs> now, there's 
clearly something going on in TV commissioning world yeah. uh, where the frozen north has <laughs> once again become the source of elemental terror. Mm. And I wonder if this is in some way related to the climate crisis mm-hmm. um, where the frozen north is disappearing and so we're reinstating this unknown. You know, this, this is what's been lost, this primal thing. Mm-hmm. Uh which is an interesting thing, but at the same time, more bearded men on sailing ships going, I don't know what he's got in his cabin. Maybe he's got treasure from the Indies there. It's kind of, oh, come on. I'm needless to say, to do this? more white bearded men. I think more white bearded men. I'm kind of agnostic on the should things be historically accurate or should they reflect the population yeah. we have at the moment now. Yeah. It, it, it wouldn't have bothered me if it was a diverse crew. It doesn't yeah. bother me if it's a white crew, to be honest. Well, I mean, I probably would say that as a white man. Um, but And there was also Sky's Fortitude, exactly the same thing. Right, yes. All three of these shows sh- share the same message, where there's ice, there's evil. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, good job that we're getting rid of the ice, really. Um, <laughs> but, but they all come with their sets of cliches, and, mm. and they're in, in all of them. We've had the bearded men muttering incomprehensibly. There are always alcoholics. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's a guy, the ship surgeon who's addicted to laudanum. Yep. Uh, there's always people in an enclosed space trying to keep secrets. There's always yes. a conspiracy to murder. In the early scenes, there are always bars where something awful is taking place mm-hmm. and you yeah, like to get stabbed as get a drink. It is a miracle, to be honest, that the whaling industry was able to drive whales to the brink of extinction, given how much was happening on board ship. <laughs> um, I don't know how they found time to hunt the whales. Um, now, rather than the 50-somethings of the terror, this has a slightly younger cast, um, Stephen Graham as the captain, although in the first episode... The single greatest thing is about 30 seconds of Tom Courtney being Tom Courtney. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, I'm slightly baffled and <laughs> wide-eyed, but, you know, yes, I'm actually evil, if that's okay. Uh, he's fantastic. Uh, but I think it's Colin Farrell we're meant to mm. be watching. Yes. Fat, I be- fat Colin Farrell. Playing Russell Crowe. <laughs> playing <laughs> Russell Crowe. Yes. Seriously. Yeah. And he's putting weight on his acting. Give me my fucking BAFTA now. <laughs> that's right. Because I've yes. been locked down for two years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, in some ways, his presence is the most interesting thing. Because, mm. you know, 15 years ago, he was the big new star. And now, mm-hmm. this isn't mm-hmm. even the lead role. You know, mm-hmm. this is a second or third role. Yeah. And he's brought in saying, look, we've got Colin Farrell. Um, it's hard to understand anything he says. But um, I'm glad you found that, too. Because yeah. I'm thinking it's my hearing. But throughout no. this... Thinking, what, I, it was what, it was the same what? with the terror as well. Yeah, I think yeah, they had yeah. this sense that if you're in these small wooden rooms, then everyone's just going to talk like this. Yeah, <laughs> no, speak up, speak up, enunciate. <laughs> um, Jamaica in as well. Yeah, the big. Oh, I didn't see that, but right. yes, it's the big the big problem mm. because they think somehow period is yes. sort of mumbling yes. stuff into your mug of beer. But, <laughs> <laughs> Alex. but no, oh, really, oh. I hated this. Oh, really? Profoundly, I can't. I cannot tell you how much I hated oh, this. Oh, goodness me. How much did you end up watching? I watched two episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I do for science, listeners. Um, I just... I have a pathological dislike for things which I consider designer bleak because I find it unrealistic mm-hmm. in something that's meant to be realistic because actually you will find people in terminal 
care wards cracking jokes yes. and you will There's find you will find money. you know life and murderers in yeah. death row showing warmth mm-hmm. and humanity mm-hmm. so when you so, so drain all of it, it yes yeah. when you drain all of it to make it design oblique i hate it because i find in it every a real dislike for humanity mm-hmm. i mean that's my problem always with beckett the mm-hmm. difference between beckett and someone like tennessee williams is that they both they both write about you know the monstrosity of the human condition mm-hmm. but one writes about it with love while the other writes about it with dislike and this for me had a real dislike for humanity i mm-hmm. mean colin farrell's character is ludicrous he, he might as well have worn a a, a, a bodysuit I found the seal clubbing and the whale harpooning mm-hmm. so gory mm-hmm. and so graphic. And I get I get what it was trying to do. It was mm-hmm. trying to say, this is the viciousness that has made these men dead inside. Mm-hmm. But actually, you don't need to batter us over the, the head with it mm. for 10 minutes, gushing gazes of blood. Mm-hmm. I quite enjoyed that bit because oh, no. it was a bit of drama <laughs> amongst the mumbling. No. Well, for, for there to be drama, there has to be some obstacle that it, the central characters have a chance of overcoming. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah, and didn't. Right. There isn't, I mean, They're all unremittingly yes. awful They're people. They're all doomed. And They're you're all just, awful. Yes, yes. You're just, We're just wishing for the thing to, to, to <laughs> sink. It's like It's like that famous uh, Diary of Anne Frank musical Broadway uh, <laughs> mm. show where uh, it, where people were shouting she's in yes. the attic yes. because yeah. it was so yeah. so dreadful. <laughs> but I'm sure some people will like it. So. But if you like boats and you like murder... <laughs> and, hate can, and you hate whales. And you hate whales. You've got nothing to do. Unseals. <laughs> uh, I'd give it a go. <laughs> Finally, a new special regular feature for our Patreon people as we ask our star guest what is their favourite record of all time and why. Dan Gillespie Sells, what's yours? The question I always dread, <laughs> what's your favourite record of all time? And I don't have one. I pick a different one every time, so I'm a <laughs> terrible liar. Um, I'm picking Nina Simone's version of Here Comes the Sun because it's, it's, a, it's a song I can always go to. It's the perfect balance of happy and sad. And for me, I find that my favourite pop songs and my favourite world musically is, is this, this layered world of, of something shiny and glorious and heartbreaking at the same time. Mm. And so and I think this is a great example of that. Um, every time I put it on, I, I feel lots of the emotions. Mm. And so it's complex in that way. Mm. And it's obviously musically extraordinary and beautiful, you know, period recording the way they recorded things back in them days just sounds beautiful to my ears and Nina is a genius and the song is a beautiful song all right we're at the end of the podcast Boo. Boo. And it's closing time chatter. Thanks for that, everybody. What will we be discussing over a hulk of whale meter? Someone quietly disposes of a shipmate in the background. And a bottle of rum. <laughs> Michael. Bob Mortimer. Yeah. That's all. 
Tell us um, more. I've just been on such a Bob Mortimer jag for mm-hmm. months now. Uh, we've been working our way through Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing. At the start of this year, I watched every episode of Taskmaster to a night um, over about two months. Bob Mortimer on that is amazing. And Would I Lie to You is a show I've never actually watched whole episodes mm-hmm. of. It's just one of those things that's always on Dave when you're flicking channels. Oh, would I lie? I'll watch five minutes of Would I mm-hmm. Lie to You. Um, but since reading Catelyn Moran's profile of Bob Mortimer mm. in the Times last week, I've been going through YouTube looking at every single mm. Bob Mortimer monologue on uh, From What I Lie to You. And they make me weep, even after multiple viewings. I commend to everyone the theft and shrubbery monologue, right. which you can find on YouTube. Okay. If you do not laugh, you have no soul and I wish you dead. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, can Bob's Afternoon Delights on YouTube. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, my God, it's so funny. It was sponsored by... Tenants or something? It, it's just, and it, it's it's so low budget; it doesn't have a budget. They just jump off rocks. <laughs> it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Watch that. Also, Cater- is it Catterick? Catterick, yeah. Catterick, their sitcom that was fairly doomed and never really got taken up and um, never got season two. But, which I think but, is absolutely amazing. But when I when I watch more from White House like Gone Fishing, I mean, I like um, Paul Whitehouse a lot on it. But yeah. both my wife and I watching it go. Bob Mortimer is just the nicest man in the mm. world. He just has mm. this sense of open-heartedness, mm. you know. And even when he falls, he, he just falls over and he's delighted that he's yeah. fallen over. <laughs> it's just so lovely. Wonderful. <laughs> Listeners, take note. Dan, what's your closing time chatter? Um, it's more of a question mm. rather than a chatter. Yeah. What's going on with Nicki Minaj and <laughs> Boris Johnson? I don't know what's happening. Okay. All I know is I heard someone's played me a voice note yes. of her speaking with a really quite good English accent. <laughs> for, for, you know, like it's, it gets there. It gets, it gets there. there during the clip, What I like it? about it is slightly estuary. And it's, kind of like, <laughs> it's not the normal American yeah. trying to do a British accent yeah. accent. So it's quite good. Um, I'm just very confused and baffled because I know it's something to do with Met Gala and it's something to do with this. And it's just one no, of those it's, things. It's to do with giant testicles. Yes, yes. exactly. Well, what's not and to the like? Vaccine. So, yeah. I mean, literally, kind of because I've, I've had a mad week because it's release week and I've just not had a chance to touch mm. the Murphy, I'm mm. touched the ground. I'm just getting smatterings of weird little bits of information in the ether. And sometimes these things, even no matter how much of a bunker I'm in, they still <laughs> manage to get to me. And and Met Gala, large testicles, Nicki Minaj, Boris Johnson. I'm still confused. <laughs> so the good news for me is that start this year, I put a fiver on with William Hill on Nicki Minaj will start beef with Britain's chief medical officer over giant testicles <laughs> and I want 80,000 quid <laughs> amazing odds you'll get on that there we go the modern world Alex what's your closing time chatting so uh, this week the casting was announced for a new mm. production of the Glass Menagerie in the West End mm-hmm. and it's going to be Amy Adams so Tennessee I Williams, if anyone thinks it's a different Glass slightly, Menagerie yes uh, because it's one of my very favourite plays one of my mm-hmm. very favourite actors I have a slight uh, uh, hesitation if maybe she's a little too young for Amanda. Last mm-hmm. time I saw it was with Jessica Lang in the past, okay. quite a bit older. Um, but it's going to be wonderful. And it's uh, it's the the booking has opened now. It's on at the Duke of York Theatre in London from next spring. And it's directed by Jeremy Herring, who's done some really terrific stuff. Uh, and um, I couldn't be more excited about it. 
Uh, what's your show? Well, I just need to mention two things. Rick Astley and the Smiths. <laughs> he saved the week. Who is this new hero that we have? I mean... You probably saved the Smiths as well. <laughs> yes. well. I'm not sure that anyone can do that quite yet, but it's maybe he saved the century. Um, mm. Yes, this footage, if anybody has been sitting under a rock, of Rick Astley with the Blossoms band doing This Charming Man online was just the most heartening, most wonderful thing I have ever seen. Um, and that includes giving birth actually that wasn't a great thing to see but it's just fantastic and really heartened me and there's going to be a tour he's going to be playing be the songs of the Smiths it can be what, what was Rick Astley and he's just like please I'm there every night what was amazing was the reaction because the first one it was announced mm. Rick Astley and Blossoms played the music of the Smiths yes. at Manchester Albert Hall and London Forum and everyone's going mm-hmm. then that footage, that footage from came out yes. and everyone went Oh, this is just going to be such fun, isn't it? We can <laughs> sing these songs without going. Uh, <laughs> oh, fuck, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there was a point, wasn't it, where, where everyone did the "Oh, the Mobius strip of life has now eaten itself, and we're all in the vortex." Of the, and now Who it's just completely love. Oh, there were a few kind right. of snarky. We're in the post, post, post world, and everything. Oh, right, right. I'm afraid so, when I first heard, it, I oh, said Francis Fukuyama was right here oh, at the end of history. You were one of those. But then I saw the footage. Yeah, yeah. And life has been restored again and everything is fine. Rick Astley, we love you. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Dan Gillespie Sells from Out of the Feeling and everybody's talking about Jamie fame. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Michael Han from Working for Loads of Newspapers. Thank you so much for having me again. (laughs) From me. And from me. Producer Alex Reese And producer Yelena Sofronievich. It's been a riot. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu and Sean Pandon. The assistant producer was Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Andrew Harrison is enjoying some liver with some nice Chianti. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>